continue our study of the Lord's letter to the church in Ephesus by turning to Revelation chapter 2. I'd like to read to you that whole short letter of seven verses. We're considering specifically now, after we've looked at the various parts of it so far, we're considering now the remedy, how it is that we are to restore that lost love, to regain what we have forsaken. Now, from Revelation chapter 2, let's pick up in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that uh, we too, hearing what the Spirit says to the churches, might not neglect love, and so be found as those who in that day are eating and rejoicing at the tree of life in the paradise of God with all those who have loved our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and others for his sake. We pray that you would increase that fruit of love even as we consider it your word tonight. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, one of the most influential and important manuals of the Christian life ever written is called The Imitation of Christ by the Dutch monk Thomas Akempis. I've mentioned it to you before in, in several searching lessons about things like humility and self-denial and the contempt that the Christian has or should have for the things of this world. You will find excellent lessons of the Christian life, but what you will not find in that great book is anything about love. I emphatic as the Bible is that it is ultimately love that is at the center of our faith, that love is the first mark of the child of God. It is love by which the, the world will know that we are disciples and so forth. That seems to have eluded Thomas Akempis in his book on imitating Christ. I've mentioned it to you before, but only to point out again, I find this omission astonishing that such a famous book could leave love entirely out. Um, that which is supposed to uh, distinguish Christ and his disciples and his religion in the world, this matter of love not being mentioned. And so, surely this is a warning, my point is, this is a warning for us. Uh, if, if such an influential spiritual classic on the Christian life somehow neglected to include the most important thing about Christian living, namely a life of love, then we need to recognize that there is something within us, something in the character of fallen man, something in the human heart that makes it cold and dull and loveless, that even if other things are being done, 
love has a tendency to suffer. And so before we're too hard on Thomas Akempis, let's admit that we all have this same problem, that we manage somehow to underestimate this central feature in the Christian life. The Bible, time and again, puts it front and center. The Lord says that love is the law and the prophets. It's the great commandment and the second that is like it. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It is the new commandment that Jesus gave to us to love one another as he loved us. The Bible holds love as, uh, before us as a distinctively Christian love, a love that is the overflow of our experience of God's love as it's been revealed in Christ. It is therefore essential to the Christian life, to the health of every individual Christian, as well as to the whole church. I mean, a carpenter or a plumber could do very fine work without love, but God's work could never be done without love in any way that pleases him. Certainly our Savior came into the world on a mission supremely of love, and his disciples are likewise sent out in that spirit. Now, the apostles, for their part, were much more concerned about love than we are in the modern church. That is to say, they, they, they kept putting it forward in their writings as a major theme, teaching what God desires them to know about love, exhorting their readers to practice it, modeling it for the church to follow, and calling attention to that fact, warning about love for the world that can steal away our love for Christ, praying for the church time and again to grow in Christ-like love. I mean, we may be prone to forget it, it's true, but the Word of God again and again will remind us to remember, to repent, and to return to that first love. Well, how can we do so? That'll be the topic uh, that's before us today. We're told to remember, to repent, and to return, but what is involved in returning? That's what we'll be considering. So we've been uh, studying Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus, and we have seen that there was much to commend in them. They had successfully weathered various trials from the outside, defended the church from false teaching on the inside. The Lord mentions twice how much they have uh, persevered and labored uh, for Christ and not grown weary. There was much to commend this wonderful church. But all, of course, was not well. There was something fundamentally wrong at the center, and Jesus puts his finger on it in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And as I pointed out, it doesn't mean that you have no love, certainly. Uh, he says you have uh, left this first love, the emphasis being on first. Your, your love is simply not what it was at first. And uh, it doesn't say whether this is love for God or for Christ or for fellow believers, so perhaps it's best to take this as just Christian love in general, which, as we know from other studies, certainly starts with love for the Lord, and then for his sake is extended to one another, and even love for the lost in the proper way. So this church, they, what was it like? They were still doing good deeds, they were still diligent. They lived upright lives. They rejected false teachers. They were, if you like, frequenting worship and reading God's word and praying and singing. But there was something going on in the heart. Their religion was becoming more external than internal, more mechanical than heartfelt. 
Their service was being done perhaps more out of obligation. Their study was perhaps more academic and not vital. They were lacking joy and energy and creativity. And waning love is one of those things that it's really hard to recognize. It's hard to put your finger on until it's too late. But Jesus does put his finger on it indeed. And this letter is a wake-up call to them and to all the churches. Love or die, it says. Love or die. Calling this church to action, Jesus warns, if you do not repent, I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this church has survived persecution, and the church can survive and endure that. We've seen that time and again, but the church will not survive lovelessness for Christ will come and take its lampstand away. This passage teaches us that we may yet be faithful to the gospel, teaching the truth, be morally upright, working hard, and yet be displeasing to Christ because we lack the most important thing. Love can grow cold when everything else is going on well. And if we focus on lesser things at such times, then we get distracted and we don't recognize what's missing in the heart. Or as one writer points out, the church at such times has a tendency to trust in external religious rituals, traditions, denominational distinctions, doctrinal correctness, moralistic rules, while we overlook the essential foundational elements of love for God and neighbor and how easy it is to be self-satisfied like the Pharisees who tithe mint, rue, and every herb while they neglect justice and the love of God. Luke chapter 12. External religious performance can insidiously replace true inner faith and heartfelt love, and this is an ever-present danger. So says Alex Strouch. Well, the Bible calls us back again, time and time again, Love must be the foundation of Christian character, that we should be rooted and grounded in love. Love must be the path upon which we walk, as we are to walk in love. It must be that which binds the hearts of the church together, as we are knit together in love, it says. Love must become the protection that we gather around ourselves in our spiritual warfare, as we are taught to put on the breastplate of love. In his great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, no matter whatever else we do, even if we do the greatest, even if we give everything we have to the poor, even if we surrender our body to the flames of martyrdom, without love, it's nothing. We are nothing. And James, therefore, says, love is the sum and fulfillment of our obedience to the royal law of liberty, for love is the fulfilling of the law and the bond of perfection. So, we come now to the passage to ask this question tonight after that background and my review. How can we recover from lovelessness? Well, the Lord gives three clear, specific steps, which I'll cover quickly. To regain lost love, we must remember, repent, and return to the first works. Simple enough. Remember, repent, and return. Let's consider that with some special emphasis on the third point and we'll apply it to ourselves. Well, first, remember. Jesus begins in verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember the love that you had at first. 
Remembering is an important but easily overlooked part of a healthy walk with God. Do you re- did you notice that in the Psalms that we sung, how fervently I love the Lord, um, we, we have in the next several verses some reminder of why we love the Lord, of some of the things that he has done for us and the reasons why we are so joyful in him. My cries for help he hears. All my life I'll call on him who turned to me his ear. Uh, same thing in Psalm 18 in its, uh, in its own way. Uh, Psalm 18 reminds us of the great deliverances that the Lord has accomplished for us. I love you, Lord. You're my strength, my rock, my power, my hiding place, my shield, my horn of safety, my tower. I'll call upon you for help, for you are worthy of all praise, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Uh, Remembering, what has the Lord done? Why do we love him so much? What is it like to love him? Um, How do we express that, that delight? Uh, this is an overlooked part, but a very important biblical part of a healthy walk with God. Um, God put this right into the calendar of uh, the year. That is to say, when he first brought his people out of Egypt, he established first the Passover and then the other festivals, so that in various ways they would be reminded of all the great things God had done for them. And, well, to keep the joyful memory of their redemption alive and allow them time and opportunity Uh, off from their other responsibilities to come before him and to rejoice, he says. And and so it was important for the spiritual life of the nation that they remember why they so fervently love the Lord. Similarly, of course, the Lord's Supper is appointed for us in remembrance of Christ's death upon the cross. As, As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, in part proclaiming it to ourselves because we need a constant reminder of the joy of our salvation. Uh, some people augment this with prayer journals, or they record answers to prayer, or have special notes in the diary of God's faithfulness. Why? So they can look back and remember the love that they had at first and stir themselves up to it. Sometimes it's easy to forget. Well, here in the passage, Jesus tells the Ephesian church to use their collective memory and recall what it was like before they left that first love, to consider the height from which they have fallen. They needed to recall the way that they loved the Lord so that they would know what their repentance should look like. And if you, or likewise, are feeling spiritually lukewarm, you should remember to Think back on what it was like, perhaps in better days or perhaps when you first were saved and what it meant for you to walk so closely with the Lord and what was the love and the joy and the peace like. Uh, Remember that sense of intimacy and nearness and thankfulness you had. Remember how, how great these things were in your mind when you contemplated the great things of God and how you loved the Word of God and enjoyed reading it and hearing it and studying it. And when prayer was more spontaneous and when you much more deeply treasured the fellowship of the local church, um, such memories will not only help you, but they will lead you to the second part of the Lord's solution, namely repent or turn back. Remembering, our first point, repenting, our second point. 
Now, repentance isn't a word that's in common use. That is to say, we don't read it in the newspapers. It's not much on the television. It's a rather old-fashioned word, and many people aren't altogether sure even what it means. For some people, I think it conjures up strange images of monks in the Middle Ages punishing themselves in a cold cell. Others might picture walking the aisle during an altar call. But repentance, as I've shown you many times, is essentially a turning from sin to God in a way that is both sorrowful and joyful. Uh, Sorrowful for the sins of the past and joyful to be returning back to the Lord. Uh, 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 That makes it both a faithful and fruitful thing to do. We can think of the prodigal son sorrowing from his sins, but returning to his father and finding there a tearful embrace and a call to rejoice. So this is the picture of repentance. Uh, Reading Richard Sibbs this week, I came across a comment. He refers to a mythical metal called adamantine. I I don't know the origin of this, if this was something they thought existed in the Greek, Greco-Roman ages, I don't know. Uh, a metal that, as the story goes, could only be melted with blood. Well, that's an interesting idea. Uh, Sibs writes, Some say that an adamant cannot be melted with fire, but only by blood. I cannot tell whether this be true or no, but I am sure that nothing will melt the hard heart of man but the blood of Christ. So, here's the picture he has of a, a hard heart, Uh, hardened by by sin and its deceitfulness, and how is it to be made soft again or warmed again? We must bring our cold, hard hearts to be warmed and melted by the tender love of Christ, a turning from sin unto God in Christ in a way that is in its own way both sorrowful and joyful, restoring the joy of our salvation. And uh, so it is that we are called to repent, to turn back to the Lord, specifically here in love, in love. That is to say, you cannot believe that God sent his son into the world to suffer the death of the cross for you without having your heart go out in love to him. You cannot believe that God has lavished his love upon you as a child, an utterly deserving sinner to make you a child, and remain unmoved. You cannot believe that God is mighty to come into our lives and transform it and so forth. You can't believe these things and have your heart remain the same. Uh, So this repentance uh, draws us off the cold, hard hearts, uh, hardened often by the deceitfulness of sin, to return us to the Lord in this joy and particularly here in love and in the first love that we experience. So this is part of the remedy also that we must remember, we must repent. And now for the rest of the time, we'll consider this third factor, returning to our first works, or as he puts it in verse 5 in my translation, do the first works. The NIV says, do the things you did at first. All right, so... We may not have expected this. You may have expected him to say, you need to love him like you did at first. And that is implied, especially at the previous point. But as uh, Jeffrey Wilson pointed out to me, the command is not feel your first feelings. 
But the command is do the first works. This makes the point that the way to regain the warmth of affection is not by working up spasmodic emotion, but by doing its duties. I'll explain. Um, I cannot directly affect the um, pupil of my eye, whether it's uh, wide or narrow. That's automatic in the way that God has made me so that uh, my, my, my pupil closes in the presence of light. It opens more in the presence of darkness. So I, I can't directly affect that. But you know what I can do? I can put my hand over my eye. And if I leave it there for a few seconds, my, my eye will begin to, uh, to open up some more, right? Uh, in the same way, your affections are not something that you can so directly affect. I mean, maybe to a point you can stir yourself up, but you cannot directly affect your heart. However, you can do those things or specifically invest yourself in the time and energy in doing the deeds of love. And uh, just as when I do that, something happens to my eye. So when you invest your time and energy in the right spirit, remembering, returning to the Lord, then we, are, we find our heart warming again. So I can use an analogy. Jesus said in another context, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you might think if you get your heart in the right place, then your investment of treasure will follow. Where your, uh, if you get your heart right, your investment of money will be correct in this case. Jesus puts it the other way around. Where your treasure goes, there your heart goes. Your heart tends to follow your investment. So if you were invest in the stock market, I've had your hearts sink in the last several months. Why? Because you invested in the stock market. Where your treasure goes, there your heart goes. Your treasure goes down, your heart goes down. Well, how then, we might ask, are we to invest ourselves, our time and energy, to do the first works in order that we might regain our lost love? Practical question, right? How can we invest ourselves so that our hearts will follow our investment? Well, uh, not from the passage, but let me mention four basic things, which you may have done at first, but now perhaps you are neglecting. Uh, these are not brilliant points. Uh, these are pretty basic things, but I'll put them before you because so often the basic things, the central things, are the things that we are neglecting. Uh, f- how can we do the first works? Well, what did you do at first? Probably you studied God's Word, and we need especially to do that about love, if love is what is lacking. So my first First, first work, my, my first thing that we need to do uh, to return is to study God's word, especially about love. In that Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, 
The word love, somebody counted up, is repeated 39 times. The problem is that the Beatles never tell you what love is. Now, the Bible, for its part, uses the word love over a thousand times, at least in the ESV, as I did a brief search. And um, the, 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 uh, God does not only tell us what love is, but even what it does. The Lord teaches a great deal on the heart and power and practice of love. Supremely, of course, as John Stott puts it, the cross is the blazing fire which, at which the flame of our love is kindled. You, you go to the cross, brothers and sisters. You think about the love of God that there has been manifest for you. Um, you know, for a good man, someone might even dare to die, but, but God commends his love toward us in this, in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the more that we appreciate God's love for us in Christ, especially at Calvary, uh, the more that we find that we, we too love him in return, that we love because he first loved us. And a greater love we will have for God and man. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another, it says. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in many such passages, we are reminded that we start with God's love and we study what the Word says about love, especially God's love, and we find ourselves caught up in it. The, the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, love can be contemplated, right? I mean, you can't make yourself love, but you can make yourself think about love, contemplate love. And if love, he says, doesn't make you think, it's not love. It may, it may be a, a physical purely physical instinct, but he says love enjoys ruminating. Love enjoys dwelling upon and looking at and considering. Love is to be studied, and the more you studied it, the more you will enjoy it. So why don't we do those first works and return to the study of God's Word, especially the study of love? I read about one pastor that, that gives an assignment to couples regularly on their wedding day. On their wedding day, in his charge, he tells them, for the first 15 weeks of your marriage, study the 15 descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and dedicate one week to each description for a whole week. Study, memorize, meditate on, discuss, and especially practice that one thing and apply it for the whole week. First week, love is patient or long-suffering. Study it, consider it, discuss it, meditate upon it, memorize it, practice it. Next week, love is kind. Same thing. It doesn't envy. It rejoices in the blessing of others. It isn't proud. It, it lifts up others. It's not puffed up, but it's humble and modest. It's not rude, but tender and thoughtful. It's not selfish, but it considers the good of others. It's not provoked, but it calmly covers a multitude of sins. It thinks no evil, but rejoices in the truth, not in iniquity. It believes and bears and hopes and endures all things, for love never fails. So he said, just spend 15 weeks laying a good foundation for love. Well, you know, it's so easy to get caught up doing other things. Right, thinking about other things, contemplating other things, uh, filling our time, our days with other things, and Martha-like, we can become so preoccupied by what we're even doing for the Lord that we neglect enjoying being with Him. 
And Mary, for her part, knew when to set other things aside and to spend time with the Lord. So Jesus says this is the one thing necessary. When we read and study God's words, it's like we're sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, and we can't love him if we don't know him and spend time with him in his word. And so to return to our love, the love we had at first, we need to learn and know the love that he has given us and that is in his words. Well, secondly, more briefly, uh, praying to God and especially for love. Praying to God and especially for love. It's, uh, it's a very interesting thing just to go through Paul's prayers in his letters, the things that Paul prays for the believers. And uh, we find that, wow, these are things that we so often neglect. Um, Paul has has prayers in, to the Philippians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, and so forth, that their love for one another would abound, or that they would be able to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, or concerning brotherly love, brethren, we have no need that we should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, but abound more and more in it. And I'm praying to God for you in this case. Uh, we, we find uh, this is a major emphasis of prayer, that uh, the love that they were to have to each other would abound and grow more and more. Well, uh, God is the best teacher of love, point one, and it is the special work of the Holy Spirit to bear that fruit in us. And how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, point two. So we need to appeal to the author and source of love in order that we might have it more ourselves. Not to mention that just spending time with God in prayer strengthens our love and our relationship to him as we draw near. So as we seek his presence, as we sing his praises perhaps, and respond in prayer as we read his word, we, we find that the love of God in Christ grows within us. So pray that you would more and more have love for him, for your brethren, have a love for the lost friends and neighbors. And for Thessalonians 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in one more prayer. And may he teach you the genuine grace of love. Romans 12. So... Bible study, prayer, uh, third emphasis in the scripture I'll mention is meeting with one another, especially to stir up love. Meeting with one another, especially to stir up, one, to stir up love. We can remember some of us, you know, back in those good old days when our love was, was, uh, was still fresh and strong, uh, how much we hung out with the people of, of God, how much we had them over, how much we went and did things with them, and uh, how much that was a help and a benefit to us. Well, Hebrews says, even in difficult times, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Uh, you can't grow in love, just sitting on your couch, certainly not love for your brethren. Love requires an object as well as a subject. And love is a corporate learning experience. And the Bible reminds us that of all the gifts and, de and, and deeds and 
graces that he gives, they are given in order to be exercised one to another in love. You just can't increase Christian love for others at home on the couch with an Xbox. Doesn't happen. Or whatever people have now, right? So anyway, not picking on video games. You see what I point, though. Someone in the church, uh, someone said that the church is the spiritual workshop for the development of Christian love. Like, you know, we get together and it's like a love factory, okay? So we're all working on it. You know, we're considering one another to stir up love and good needs. And this is like the the school of, of love then. Can you welcome others to your home, into your home? Can you devote yourselves to loving fellowship? Uh, go to that Bible study. Uh, the biblical commands to love one another are addressed again and again to the whole community, reminding us that we are all responsible for mutually exhorting and encouraging and serving, teaching, praying, building up, caring for and loving one another. It, it's hard just to work yourself up into love when you're alone, Right? You can't wait around for somebody to come to you and start loving. You, you must take the initiative. Um, your business is to love others, not to seek to have others love you first. You can wait a long time to be invited over to somebody else's house, or you can invite someone else over today. So we need authentic, living, breathing examples of Christian love to stir us up, to remind us of the graces of love, of our devotion not only to God but to one another. And so Paul commends Timothy that you have followed my example of love. And Paul instructs Timothy to be an example of love to others. We need, we need people full of love in the church, teaching us how to love, showing us how to love, leading us to love others. And uh, so my third of four emphases here, if we're, look, if we're wanting to know the first works, and probably if you remember some better, better time in your spiritual life, it, in, it included more time in the Word and more time in prayer and more time meeting with one another. And uh, fourth and finally, the last biblical emphasis is doing good works, especially those that demonstrate love doing good works, especially those that demonstrate love. Um, the Bible tells us time and time again how practical love is, and we're to be practitioners, not theorists. Um, it's, the Bible says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let's not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Another practical way to invest yourself. You, you invest yourself in doing a loving deed for others. Uh, Paul, in Romans 12, says that love must be sincere and lists a number of practical ways to express and live out that love and using our spiritual gifts in a variety of ways in love. And, um, well, I, I, I will leave it leave it there. I, I, I don't think, again, that I'm teaching you anything that you didn't know, but you say, well, I wish I had more love. Uh, Jesus says, remember, repent, and do the first works. Well, what kind of first works are these? He doesn't say. Well, how about uh, time in his word, and time in prayer, and uh, time with each other, and time uh, doing loving deeds? 
That will be a very good start. You invest, and where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart following. In conclusion, everyone wants love, I think, but real love somehow remains scarce, increasingly scarce, I'm afraid, in the world. Um, Selfishness runs very deep in our fallen race, and for this reason, God's great love for us has come all the way down, as we read this morning, all, all the way down in Christ, that we who are poor may be made rich. This God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And and the Lord is always coming down and bringing us up and raising us to higher levels. And none of us can ever rest in any level of achievement. But we must always be stretching the heart to love more and more. Is your love growing? Or is it stagnant and shrinking? Emphasis again in the scripture is of growth. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Very interesting. You're such a magnificent church of love. I have one thing to encourage you in. Love a lot more. Increase more and more. Or another letter. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. This is a goal. uh, A very high and wonderful goal. You know, there's... Um, uh, so many, uh, so many things that could be said about this critically important topic. So many ways in which we can find the, the the Bible reorients our love. But so many of these simple things come back to us again and again. Love must be the heart and the center. We must remember, return. Uh, sorry, remember, repent, and return to the first works. We must increase and not shrink back. And one more thing abound more and more in love. And then we will answer to the purpose that God made us. It is he who has made love to be that greatest of motivations and of delights and powers in our life. I was just thinking recently, you never hear songs on the radio about sports, or very rarely, even though people are very interested in sports. Uh, you don't hear anything about shopping, although people spend time shopping, right? But the, the song's about love again and again. Why is it the richness of our life in so many ways? Why is it the, the, the subject of so much uh, song and poetry and, and drama? It's the richness of our life because it was first the richness of our God's life. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God. May you abound. We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. We give thanks for the love of every one of you and pray that it may abound toward each other. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we often remind ourselves of the great distance that there is between the gospel treasure and the earthen vessel. 
that uh, jar of clay that yet holds this bright and brilliant treasure, and who is sufficient for these things. So we pray once again for your grace and help and strength, enlightenment and quickening. We pray for your conviction and your reproving where we need to remember and to repent. And we pray, O God, for your encouragement and gracious reassurance as we return to you and do those first works. So, our Father, we pray that as we come to uh, the end of this service once again, that you would lead us in the way of love. Do not merely set before us your principles, but send your Spirit that you might have the fullness of your love more and more manifest in our hearts and lives. And may this church always be growing exceedingly and increasing and abounding in love one to the other. We pray it for Christ.